Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. My name is Edith Devani and I'm contemporary curator here at the Royal Academy of Arts and co-curator of the Jasper Johns exhibition, Something Resembling Truth. And Jasper Johns is one of our honorary members. He's been an honorary member for over 20 years, but he's a hugely, hugely celebrated American artist and is well known over here, but we just don't get to see his work. The last time there was a, a significant Jasper Johns exhibition in London was 40 years ago at the Hayward Gallery, so it really was long overdue. It's a thematic survey, so it's not a retrospective as such. It's, it's more done in a thematic way, but it does cover his entire career. And the title is, is something that we wrestled with slightly. Um, it comes from a, a, a longer quote by him, um, and I'll read that to you. One hopes for something resembling truth, some sense of life, even of grace, to flicker, at least in the work. When myself and um, my co-curator, Dr. Roberta Bernstein, were thinking about titles, we suggested something resembling truth to Jasper and had a wonderful conversation with him. It was one of those conversations after lunch at his, his studio at Connecticut. And he said, well, I, I can see what you're trying to do. You know, I, it's an interesting idea, but you know, I worry that it sounds a little bit pretentious. And we said, Jasper, absolutely not. It doesn't sound pretentious at all. And he said, well, it's easy for you to say that because you didn't say it. <laughs> so which I, thought, I thought it was very amusing. But so much of his work is this, this notion of trying to get to the truth, trying to unravel what we're looking at. And it really underpins his thinking. So it felt to us as if it was you know, the, the perfect title. And we worked very closely with the artist on the development of the exhibition. Jasper is 87, he's still very active. He works every day in his studio. And this is a, a picture of myself um, and Roberta. Roberta wears the glasses in the, in the middle of the, the picture. And then to the, um, to the front is um, Maureen, who's, who's Jasper's assistant, who runs the office there. And I had brought over um, a great, great effort, actually, the model of the gallery. So for each exhibition, as we're developing the, um, the checklist, we're also developing the idea of how you occupy the galleries, how the exhibition is configured, because, of course, that means so much in people's eventual understanding of it and aesthetically how it all comes together. And, of course, there's no one better than the artist to really take a view in this. So I had got our architects who are working with us on the design of the exhibition to take our model, our architecture model apart, flat pack it for me, and I took it on the plane to Jasper's studio and put it all together with bits of tape and pins. And we spent hours looking at it and interrogating it, and he was really fascinated as to how the exhibition would flow and came up with some very, very good ideas. So it was really just to kind of emphasize how much he was involved in, um, in the development and the final look of the, the exhibition. And indeed, the paint color of the walls was, was a, a color that Jasper had chosen. He's got on his estate um, a, a, a building that he calls a barn, which he uses as a gallery. And I was, I was looking at pictures there and chatting to him. I said, you know, Jasper, this color of the walls is beautiful. And he said, no, it's a good color. It took me two years to, to, to reach this. And I said, should we use that for the exhibition? So that's what we did. And it, it is indeed very beautiful. We've arranged the exhibition thematically, and one of the things that I was very hesitant to avoid, I was trying to avoid, was this notion of just starting with the flags. Because when anyone thinks about Jasper Johns, even if they just know his work a little bit, it's the flags that come to mind. It's those symbols and signs that he used, that, you know, that launched him, really. And, and 
my anxiety was, you know, if you start with that, people kind of just, you know, they, they stop looking at anything else. And I wanted to have an introduction which really described the complexity of this artist and how this kind of, this, this kind of deep intellectual rigor is applied to his work across the decades. So for the introduction, we chose three works from, from different periods of his life to try and really emphasize this. And the first one is one of the classic works, so it's Target. Slightly later, one 1961, the biggest of all of the targets that he did. And it's, it's, it's made um, from encaustic, a newspaper. And encaustic is a very interesting uh, material. And one of the things that you see again and again in Jasper's practice is that he takes these kind of little known, little used media mediums and, and, and um, makes them his own. And encaustic is a case in point. When he first reached New York in, um, in the 1950s, he worked in a bookshop for a little bit, and he got this big book from Marlborough Books, which was, um, which was called Art Artist Techniques. And he was flicking through it, and he saw this technique called encaustic, which, of course, you know, was very popular in Egyptian times, and is, is, um, it has got a, a, a wonderful facility to dry quickly and to hold pigment. And he started working with it and perfected the technique, and it still uses it to this day. He's also able to embed collage in it. So because it dries very quickly, unlike oil paint, he's able to do a layer of, of um, encaustic, put down his collage, and layer it up and create this very sculptural surface. And one of the things that you see about Target, and indeed the later flags, is that they, um, they've got this really seductive, gorgeous, luminous surface. And you know, what is a target? If it wasn't called target, we would think of it as an abstract work. It's basically a series of concentric circles. So it's kind of, it's, it's an interesting notion that he's giving it a title. And then we have another painting in the, in the central hall from 1983, Racing Thoughts. One of the th things that's often um, leveled against John's is that he doesn't give much away. He doesn't, he doesn't talk about his work very much. He doesn't talk about himself at all. But, you know, one of the arguments I wanted to present in this exhibition was that actually through his work, he really does tell us so much. And racing thoughts is a case in point. I mean, racing thoughts comes from that notion of that kind of that psychological state where you've got so much going through your mind and you're not able to stop it. And there's this kind of free association of, of all of these different, different kind of notions going through your head. And in it, Jasper is telling us a lot about not only how he feels, but also his possessions as well. And it's called one of the bathtub series. And that is, um, if you just notice in the, um, in the bottom corner here, we've got the, um, the bathtubs or the faucets, as, as the Americans call it. So the, you, you feel as if as a viewer, you're in the position that the artist is in, lying in the bath, looking at the, the, the bathroom wall, you know, in that kind of very... Um, in that state of kind of self-reflection. And there's, there's several items that are worth just pointing out. So we've got up in the, the top here is a print. And of course, Jasper Johns came in the scene when abstract expressionism was very much its zenith. And he, um, he befriended a lot of the abstract expressionist artists. And this is a print by Barnett Newman. And it's got the classic zip that runs through the center. So any of you that saw the um, Abstract Expressionism exhibition last year, which actually I co-curated as well, um, will, will be familiar with this work. There's also, there's the Mona Lisa. So not only does it refer to Leonardo da Vinci, who is um, Jasper John's favorite artist, it also refers to Marcel Duchamp, who of course did that extraordinary reworking of, of the Mona Lisa, and another artist who, who Jasper very much admired. And, and we'll talk about him a little bit later. There's a, a, a photograph over here of Leo Castelli, who was um, Jasper John's dealer 
um, from the 1950s right up until the time that Leo Castelli died and was very much a father figure in Jasper John's life. And then there's some pots here. This is a little pot by uh, an American potter, George Orr, who, um, who Jasper John's collects. And this is a, a, a jubilee vase, a silver jubilee vase, with the, um, the, the profile of Prince Philip here and the Queen here. So kind of a quirky little thing that, that crops up again and again in, um, in Jasper Johns' work. So those are just a few of the kind of complexities of this particular work. And the third piece in the central hall is called Within, um, started in 1983, completed in 2005. A very, very big work, slightly impenetrable. It's these paving stones, which is a pattern that Johns saw on a, a wall and um, outside a shop and, and, and adopted this pattern and used it again and again. But it's incredibly subtle. You get this kind of gray that's very much associated with John's work, but you've also got these elements of color coming through. So it's, it's, it's really gorgeous work. And as, as well as the, um, the painted surface, you've got these extraordinary things going on at the side. So these are, are hinged slats which fold in. So he's really playing with the idea of the two dimensions of the painting and kind of challenging our, our, our notion of that. So then you go into the first section, which is basically the early work. But we've, by presenting the exhibition thematically, it's given us the opportunity to mix up um, work of particular periods with earlier and later work. So you get that real sense of continuity running through his, his work. And Things the Mind Already Knows is also a quote from Jasper. And um, this is him at, um, in, in the, the, the mid-1950s in his studio in New York. He came to New York in 1953. He had his first exhibition with Leo Castelli in 1958, and that's when he really burst on the scene. And I've said already that, you know, abstract expressionism was really at, at kind of full pelt at that stage, so everyone's concentration was on, on very emotionally charged, big abstract art. So these, these, um, these very cool... Um, representational works from Jasper Johns were something totally different. And he became a really important artist, you know, for, you know, the abstract expressionists recognized themselves. You know, de Kooning was one of the first people to come and see Jasper Johns' exhibition at the, the Leo Castelli Gallery. But he paved the way for pop art. He wasn't a pop artist himself, although he's been identified with the movement. He really isn't. But also with minimalism and conceptualism. You know, he, was, he really kind of just, just led the way um, for those movements to develop later. And the flag. So the 1950s flags are, are considered to be that you know, the, there's only a couple of them, and we've got one of them here. We're very, very lucky to have it because um, they're made in a caustic. They're actually quite fragile. And this is made, um, is, is all on one panel with 50 stars. Um, of course, the later ones have got 52 stars. And, you know, I said about Target, the same is true for the flag. The surface of it is absolutely beautiful. Jasper's really trying to sort of seduce the viewer by this, this luminous surface that's full of pigment. And when you look at it closely, it does look incredibly abstracted because, you know, the lines aren't as straight as they look in a representation like this. And, of course, what he's doing is asking us to look again and, and, and you know, challenging us about what are we seeing. Are we seeing a flag? Is it a representation of a flag? You know, what exactly is it? And it's this notion of, you know, things the mind already knows and that things that we look at but we don't see, that we don't examine. And he's really kind of priming us to examine these things. And this is another flag from 1967. And you can see the changes in it. It's more flag-shaped. It's more rectangular. It's made up of three panels. So you've got, you know, the, the stars are one panel. This part is another panel. And then you've got the very long panel at the bottom. 
and it's got collage in it. So there's these wonderful, um, you can see coming out of it, the peeping, the, um, the, the, the newspaper print, which of course dates it as well. And although Jasper's motivation for doing the flag was never a political one, he talked about, you know, it goes back to this whole idea about his work being deeply psychological, and he talks about, you know, having a dream that he painted a flag and he got up the next morning and he did it, you know, so it comes from sort of this deep emotional kind of engagement with the, with the idea of it. But he recognizes that others will read a political message into it, and that political message will change from period to period. You know, these were done at a time of, of the, during the Cold War, so of course people had a particular attitude towards the flag. Nowadays, you know, the era of Trump, everyone's got a very different attitude towards the flag. So of course it's inevitable that that, that, that varies from, um, from, from time to time, from generation to generation. And he plays with it. You know, this is flag and orange field. Again, it's very early from 1958. You've got this beautiful background of orange and caustic on canvas with the flag positioned on it. And again, he's doing this later. So he, this is um, two flags on orange on mylar in, in acrylic. But he's chopping up the flag. And it's something you'll see again and again in his work. It also kind of reinforces that point I mentioned earlier. He never lets things go. He will continue to use that as a symbol and sign. But the other thing that I think is of note here is that you've got this autobiographical eye that comes into it. And it was, um, it was Ellsworth Kelly, his friend, um, the artist Ellsworth Kelly, who, who first noted this, um, which Jasper said, well, you spotted that, did you? And then, you know, he'll, he'll work in other colors. White, you know, th this idea of using white or all gray, the monochromatic works, very important to John's, and he started introducing them in the late 1950s. And this is white flag on, um, on newspaper collage over a lithograph. And it's almost abstract. You know, it's so loose in its form, but absolutely beautiful. And the other symbols that come into play, we've seen target already. We've had flag. This is map. When you think of the symbols he uses, um, the targets, flags, maps, um, they're, they're all things that are in the class, are numbers, of course, numbers and alphabets. They're all things that are in the classroom. They're kind of ubiquitous within, within the, um, the, 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 the teaching space that he would have occupied in the 1930s and 40s. You, know, you can imagine all of these things on the, on the walls. So very, very familiar things. So the map of, um, of the American states is a pretty accurate map. The, the edges of, you know, the, the borders are very, very blurred. And this is almost grisaille. But again, you know, that like the first work we saw in the Central Hall, there's elements of color peeping through. And he's also stenciled the, um, the, the, the state names on each of the works. It's a very big work which has come to us from, um, from L.A. Mocha. And as well as examining signs and symbols, he also started examining um, objects. And it's this idea about finding the truth behind the object. And he had this notion in his head to, um, to, to make a sculpture of a flashlight and to make it look like a flashlight so that you wouldn't be able to distinguish it from a flashlight. So in his head, he had this, this idea about what a flashlight would look like you know, an archetypal flashlight, but he couldn't find it. So he was, you know, he started to doubt his own, his own memory of what, what you know, what, what constituted a, a, a typical flashlight. Eventually he found one that would do, and he cast it in bronze and glass. And to all, you know, it, it looks just like a, a flashlight. So again, it's that idea about, you know, playing around with reality. What is it, and what does it really represent? And this is a wonderful piece from 2012, Two Slices of Bread. Um, on a, a, a bronze base, which is um, absolutely glorious. 
So I talked about numbers earlier. Numbers are the, the, the symbol or sign that he, he repeated most and, and continues to do so to this day. And of course, numbers like the alphabet, it's that idea about a, a, a mode of communication. Numbers in an abstract grouping means nothing, nor do, nor do letters. It's only when they're organized in a particular way that they communicate something that, you know, numbers in a particular sort of equation will, will mean something to someone. Um, so he, he did a lot of numbers where he goes from, from zero through to nine, so each of the numbers defined, but he also did what he refers to as zero through nine, where he's layering them up on top of each other. And this drawing, which is a very big drawing, is considered his, his best drawing, and I, I wouldn't argue with that for a moment. It's absolutely glorious, and it's, it, it's, um, it's charcoal and pastel and paper, and the, the techniques that he employs with the, um, with, the, with the charcoal are just extraordinary, so it's really worth having a look at this. And of course, you know, the, the jumble of, 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 um, of letters, of, um, of numerals, becomes really, really abstract, and this doesn't seem to be working anymore. But what you can, you, can, you can make out some of the curves at the bottom, and you think, well, is that an eight or is it a three? Then there's a little squiggle line at the top, which looks as if it might be the one. And there's another example of zero through nine, um, a colored work, very bright, very luminous. Um, it belongs to the Tate Gallery, uh, where he's, again, layering up the numbers. And then he did this sculptural work in, um, in 2007. It took him several years to do. It's cast in aluminium, and it's, it's enormous. It's almost three meters by just over two meters. And for each of the, the, the numbers, he, um, he made the stencil himself. And not only does he make the stencil himself and, and, and works it up, and he uses wax as the, as the material to work on, and then it's, it's cast from that. He works up the surface of each of the little squares that contains each of the numerals. So there's loads of detail to look for. There's, there's keys, there are, there's um, uh, screen printing on the surface of it. At the top right-hand corner, there's a footprint of Merce Cunningham, the, um, the choreographer who was a very close friend of Jasper John's. So there's loads and loads of detail in, um, in, in the, the, this piece. So at the time that he was looking at the, the truth of the object, the idea of the symbol, the idea of you know, things that are looked at but not examined, he was also looking about at the painting as object. And you can see how far he's moving from the, um, from the thinking of the day, from the abstract expressionist. And at the time, some people thought he was challenging abstract expressionist art. But I, I think this exhibition shows that he wasn't. He was, he was taking a lot of what they were doing, but just moving things in a different direction as well. And I think he was the first artist to really engage with the work of Marcel Duchamp. And Duchamp had been in, um, in New York since the 19, get this right, um, it's probably late 1920s, and um, had obviously shown work with Peggy Guggenheim and was very kind of involved in the scene. And, and it was Johns who was really the first American artist who engaged with what Marcel Duchamp was doing. And one of the things Johns became incredibly interested in was, was examining what constitutes a painting. What is it? Is it an object? Is it a work of art? What's the difference? And this is a great example of it. It's Star from 1954, actually the earliest work in the exhibition. And it's sculptural. It's a painting, but it's also sculptural. It's, got, it's, it's painted with encaustic, but it's got um, elements of canvas and wood and tinted glass on it. And again, this work, Canvas, from 1956, 
he's got this beautiful encaustic surface on the on the um, on on the work, and then on top of it, he's got another painting that's face down. So you're seeing the stretcher on the back of the um, on the front, the back of the stretcher on the front of the of the painting, all painted in the same colour. And there is a painting on the other side of that 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 we don't know what it is, but we know we know it exists. Whether it's by him or someone else, no one knows. But really, what it's saying to us is, you know, what constitutes a canvas? What is it? And he's he's revealing to us what we would normally not see. That which on which is on the back of the canvas. And this is further developed in this work, painting with ruler and grey. He almost gives it away in the, in the title because he's suggesting that, you know, because he's picked out ruler and grey, that the colour of the work and the fact that the ruler is there is of equal importance in, in deciphering and understanding the work. Very gestural paintwork, mainly greys and whites. You've got a stretcher bar that runs through the middle, something you'd never expect to see in the front of the painting, but you've also got the ruler which, um, which, which traverses the, the painting at, a, at an angle and has got some of the paint remnants on it. So, I mean, this is the ruler that was used to kind of mark out the canvas to prepare it. So he's revealing a lot about how he's worked on the, on the painting. And then I, I said earlier that we tried to mix things up in terms of timing and study for a painting. Again, you know, the, the title is really revealing. It's called Study for a Painting, but it's clearly not a study. It's a finished work. And it's from 2002. And it's one of the works from the Catenary series. And the catenary series all are distinguished by this string that goes from one side to the other. And like the first work in, in like an early work in the um, in the introductory gallery, it has got slats on the side that plays with the, the the dimensional space on the on the front of the canvas. And the catenary string has got all is all to do with measurements. And the ruler and the idea of measurements is something that crops up again and again in his work. And abstract expressionism, I mean, I think one of the things that I, you know, Roberta and I were very keen to, to stress was that, you know, he wasn't challenging abstract expressionism, he was doing something else. But, you know, he was engaged with, with so many of the abstract expressionist artists, and this just takes so much of the, the sense of gesturalism from them. And when you think of artists like, um, you know, particularly Jack Torkov, who's not particularly well known, we have him in our show here, um, Torkov was a good friend of Jasper John's and of Rauschenberg's, and um, they, they used to see him often. And, you know, this is kind of typical of some of his work, but what John's is doing is very different, is labeling the colors. And, of course, the color, la the, the label of the color doesn't match the color that it's identifying. So there's this, this kind of, you know, tension between what is color? Is it what we see or is it what we t we're told it is? So he's, he's setting that whole thing up. And this is, you know, like many of the works in this exhibition, this is a, an incredible loan. It's hardly ever lent. It's a really, really important work. And painting with two balls, again, um, relates to, to abstract expressionism. There is that sense of the gestural work. You can see that it's made up of three panels running horizontally here. But the distinguishing feature, really, is that the, the top section is prized open by two balls. And of course, the balls have got an erotic content. There is this argument, which I don't know if I quite 
go as far as to believe this, that it's, it's challenging a macho culture of abstract expressionism. You know, when you think about Pollock and Klein and the hard drinking and all the rest of it, you know, in the Cedar Bar, you know, it was, it was a very male-dominated culture. And this is Jasper Johns, who's a much more sensitive um, homosexual coming into this milieu. I, I'm not sure, but I think the erotic content is, is undeniable, whether it's challenging abstract expressionism or not is open for debate. What's more important is that he's challenging the notion of how we see a painting. When you think of that traditional notion that a, a, a painting is, a, is a, a window onto the world, you know, a landscape painting, you know, some of the works you see in this room, it's a window onto the world. Jasper's saying something quite different. He's saying, look, you prize it open. What do you see behind? The wall. That's your reality. So it's a, it's a very big, major statement to make. And words and voices. I mentioned alphabet earlier in relation to um, in relation to numbers. This idea about communication and communication and language are very important to Jasper. As a child, he was very engaged in poetry and continued that interest up until you know up to the present day. Um, but also very interested in in communication and how words taken out of context can mean very different things. And there's a series of works in this room which um, employ a single word um, as their title, but it also is embedded within the, within the canvas as well. And this is a very affecting work called No from 1961. So down the middle of the work, you can see this line that runs down the middle. It's actually a wire that runs all the way down. And at the bottom of the wire, there's two, um, two metal letters, N-O, and behind this collage of No as well. Um, very loaded, you know, it's a very, very loaded work. And, and during this time, he had split from, um, from Robert Rauschenberg. They had been, they'd been very, very close. It was a very significant relationship in his life. In fact, when he, when Jasper Johns first came to New York, there were three people he befriended very quickly, all of whom had a significant impact on, on how he, his art developed. Robert Rauschenberg was the first proper artist he ever met. And they became, they became lovers. Um, but by the 1960s, early 1960s, that had fallen apart, and he went through this kind of great um, sort of emotional upheaval. But also, I mentioned already Merce Cunningham, the choreographer, but John Cage, the, um, the composer, who was Merce Cunningham's partner. And the four of them became a very kind of tight group, and it's kind of fascinating, really, when you, you think about that, that broad... I mean, it was very modern at the time. We, we take it for granted now in contemporary art, but, you know, that broadening out of the idea of art to um, to include the performative arts as well, and I'm sure that found it, you know, that 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 did um, find its way into into Jasper's work. But this work is called No, and then this one is called Liar. Again, a really, you know, a tough word taken out of context. This is a small work, but incredibly powerful, um, made in caustic pencil and sculpt metal. And Liar is is there's a kind of mirror image of it as well. So it's, it's printed twice, and it really looks as if it's kind of been stamped out in the paper. And then voice, that idea about, you know, the, the, the voice, whose, whose voice are we, we speaking in? Are we speaking in our own voice? Are we speaking through the voice of others? Is examined in a couple of works. This is, this is one which is um, incomplastic. And it's an example of another um, medium that um, Jasper has made very much his own. He, he uses this plastic, instead of paper, he'll use a plastic um, sheet. 
and, and uh, paint on it in ink, which is an incredibly difficult thing to do because, of course, ink on that sort of surface is very fugitive. And he loves that, that, that you know, trying to control it and the possibilities that, um, that occur when, 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 um, when applying the ink to the plastic and achieves such great results. And like encaustic, it has that kind of luminosity as well. There's something kind of extraordinary about this, so the, 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 um, the inherent properties of the plastic that make it look sometimes as if it's been lit from behind. And ventriloquist, again, this notion of, you know, the voice. Are we speaking through the voice of others? And like the, um, the racing thoughts work, which we, we looked at in the first gallery, this is also a bathtub series. You see the, the taps in, the, um, in the, the bottom corner and the, the vase of, um, of the Queen and the Silver Jubilee vase and Prince Philip is reprised here. So is the, um, the Barnet Newman print up in the top right corner, but his flags are repeated. So he's doubling the flags using a very different colorway as well. And there's a series of, of George Orr pots running down the, um, the left-hand side. There's also a tracing of the whale from Moby Dick. Again, another reference to literature. And periscope heart crane. So he was very interested in, in the idea of, um, of the, the artist talking through the voice of others, this idea about you know taking, taking the voice of the poet and speaking through it in a way. So Paris, um, Hart Crane was, a, was a, a poet, a homosexual, a depressive, who committed suicide by throwing himself off a boat. And the last sighting of him was an arm going up just before it kind of disappeared be, be, beneath the water. And this arm in the, the right-hand side is stretched out. And it does several things. So it represents this idea about Hart Crane and his last moments. But it also looks as if it's swept round like a windscreen wiper and change the course of the paint. And that's something that fascinates um, Johns and it's something he uses again and again in his work and he refers to it as a device, a device that somehow alters the surface of the paint. But then there's also the reference to the clock and this idea about marking time that somehow this hand has got a, you know, a sense of giving us a, 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 um, a moment in time. It's arranged in three panels again. I talked about his interest in color in the previous gallery. John's is, is very much associated for, um, for his use of grays and, and monochromes, but he's a brilliant colorist as well. And he's fascinated by the, the, the notion of color. And here he's evoking color, even though he's not using it. So it's the classic red, yellow, blue that he stamps out here. And Celine. The, um, the French writer, um, very well known for his kind of hallucinatory prose, is something that Johns has, has tried to capture here. And there's, um, you, you, you get that sense of the, the paving stone element in the bottom, but the top has got so many handprints, and it looks as if it's kind of, you know, it, as if the, it's the handprints of someone groping around in the dark, kind of trying to find, trying to find the way out. It's a it's very energetic work. And Fragments of a Letter, this is a later work, 2009. He, um, like all artists, it, it become, became very, very interested in Van Gogh's letters. And this is, this is um, uh, evoking them. Um, and he's, as well as, got, as having a letters on one side is a form of communication, there's also American Sign Language. He's looking at other possibilities of communication and therefore kind of you know, difficult the, 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 um, the opportunities for miscommunication as well. That's very much kind of embedded in this work. The next section is in the studio, and it really examines that whole thing about you know, how the domestic life 
flows into the studio life and how one affects the other. And, and you know, Jasper is um, one of the things that Roberta Bernstein, my co-curator, talks about was that she, um, she first got to know Jasper when she was a student and remembers going to a studio in the 19, late 1960s, early 1970s, and she said what was extraordinary was that, you know, he'd be painting all morning, so just, you know, very, very creative, creating all of his work in the morning, and then he would move to the kitchen, which was in the same space, and do something equally creative for lunch. And she said it was just, you know, it, was, it, was this, it went seamlessly from one into the other. And I think that's that is kind of an interesting thing about his life as well. And this is such a classic work from 1960s, which is called Painted Bronze, but more commonly referred to as the Saverin Can. And of course, the Saverin Can, a coffee can, which, which um, uh, John's appropriated to, to use as a receptacle to hold his brushes. But what he's done here is recreated it in bronze. So all of these brushes in bronze have been painted as if they're the real thing. And it's, you know, it really is an extraordinary piece, and it goes back to this notion about, you know, what is truth? Is this, what does this represent? And is it, is it real? But it's, it's humorous as well. There's this, you know, there is this, this element of humor that runs through his work, but it's also very touching. You know, he seems to have painted, hand-painted these bronze brushes with such affection, you know, these, these, these tools that have given him such good service. And of course, you know, the brush is the extension of the artist. And field painting is another development of this. So through the middle of the painting, you've got um, stencils that, that on this seam that fold backwards and forwards so that they're three-dimensional, they come out. There's a light at the top. And then there's loads of implements that, that fasten onto it by magnets so that there's a saverin can, there's a ballantine ale can, there's paint brushes, there's knives. And um, what was very exciting for us was that when the courier came from Washington with this work, he had all of the, 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 um, the implements that go down the middle laid out on a table. And he said to us, you can choose exactly where, where you put them. There's no given space place for each of these. So we had a wonderful time putting together this Jasper Johns painting. We think it looks very good. Um, and then Fool's House, I talked about the paintbrush being an extension of the artist. The broom is a kind of similar idea. You know, it's, oh, it's, a, it's a, an item that is possibly found in a studio in the corner to sweep up um, the debris from the day's work. But it is also a paintbrush, and you can see that like um, the arm in Periscope Heart Crane, it's been used as a device. It's swept across the paint, leaving a mark. But in a very Duchampian way as well, he's got, um, he, he's got other things um, labeled like stretcher and towel. And then cup. And when you think about um, the cup and the, the saverin can and the ale can, they're all used to mix paint or to hold paintbrushes. It, it goes back to Wittgenstein as well. And by this stage, he, Johns had read Wittgenstein's work and this whole idea about, you know, um, something is, is identified by its use rather than by its title. So he's, he's exploring that whole philosophical concept as well in his, his work. And of course, Fool's House refers to the studio. And in the studio from 1982, it was based on um, him observing a blank canvas leaning against the wall for a long time, so he decided he'd paint it. He's got a, a, a measuring stick that comes out and leans out of the work. You know, so another example of that. But he's also got the cast of a hand, and there are more, more casts that 
crop up later in the exhibition. He's always been interested in casting, and you know, from the, the very first works of the 1950s, he included elements of casting in them. But it also anticipates the cross-hatching work, which you can see in the, in the right-hand corner. This is a, a, one of the, the largest works he's done. He, he did a series of, of large works over, over two decades, and this is, this is one of his most significant. And again, it goes back to that, that idea of you know, the red, yellow, and blue, these really important colors that everything else is based on. But you see with them that the rainbow sweep in the corner of each of them, there's a ruler at the bottom of it as if the ruler has swept across the paint and created this kind of rainbow arc. And we have the broom hanging by the side, which again has made a mark on the, on the canvas. And we've got screen printing at the bottom of the, the yellow piece. There's also screen printing on the other panels, but not so clear. And the orange little square that's at the side is on hinges. Again, a very Duchampian device. It folds in, and it was the folding in of this device that, um, that transferred the green paint from one surface onto the other. Then time and transients. One of the things we wanted to, that Jasper Johns explores in his work is, um, is, is life and death, the passing of time. Um, and this is a, a work from the 1960s, 1961, called Water Freezes, where you've got a thermometer running down the center of the painting, and it's marked at the point at which water freezes. So there's that moment where one, one thing changes its properties into another thing and cross-hatching. Um, John said that he um, was driving along and he saw this cross-hatching pattern on a car. So it was a very fleeting image, but he knew instantly he was going to use it. And a couple of years later, he developed this and it became the kind of formation, the pattern that identified a, a body of work across a, an entire decade. And this is one of the most significant works that he did, which is called Between the Clock and the Bed, and it relates to um, a self-portrait by Edward Munch of the same title. So here we have Edward Munch standing in the middle of his painting, just going back to John's work that's represented by the orange shape in the middle. But on one side of Edward Munch is the grandfather clock, which of course is marking time. Then there's the bed with this wonderfully patterned bedspread on the other side, which is, is relating, you know, the bed relates to sex and death. Um, and you can see in John's work, the bed is in the same position, and there's so much of the patterning that recreates both the, the pattern of the monks and the color as well. So it's this direct reference to the life cycle. And his patterning is so intricate. Um, you know, he, 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 did it, he worked it out in quite a mathematical way, so if you were to wrap it around a cylinder, it's a continuum. Um, so, it, you know, one edge um, leads into the next. And it's one of the early examples of him um, evoking the work of another artist, you know, showing an interest in the work of another artist and incorporating it into his work. We have another catenary in this, um, in this gallery about um, the passing of time and transience. So you see the string going from one side to the other. It's called I Call to the Grave. And um, of course, it's really linking those two worlds as if, you know, the, the, the the existence, the present world, has been linked with this future world. But also, of note, down the right-hand side, you've got this um, harlequin pattern, which evokes another artist, Picasso. But also, it's that, that idea about the, um, the harlequin as the trickster, the artist as the trickster. 
and usiyuki, um, a Japanese word for a light, a light falling of snow. Again, you know, the idea of snow can, um, can fall and, sorry, I feel as if I'm going to sneeze, is, is um, it, a light falling of snow will change the um, appearance of everything and then it melts and it goes back to, to how it was before. And, you know, like some of the earlier work we, we've looked at, it's almost monochromatic. It's a, it's a very, very limited um, range of colors, absolutely exquisite. I mean, it is, this is it's a work that everyone would like to take home with them. Beautifully, beautifully done using acoustic and collage. So here we are nearly um, over tw 20 years after, after doing the, um, the, the, the first um, encaustic works, and he's still working in the same way. And skin. Again, this notion of skin being a temporary covering. He achieved these drawings by um, covering his, body, his naked body in baby oil and pressing himself onto a piece of paper and then dusting the paper with charcoal so the charcoal stays in the areas that have, been, um, that, that have absorbed the oil to give these kind of wonderful um, images. And, and you know, even though they're not, that they're not accurate depictions of the human form, the fact that there was that kind of direct contact with the human body onto the page just makes them really potent um, images of, of, of the body. And fragments and faces. Um, I mentioned already that he was interested in casting the body. This is another example of, of that. This is called Watchmen from 1954, where we have a life-size um, half-man um, sitting on a chair at the top of the, the painting upside down. From his studio notes at the time, he was um, very interested in the idea of, you know, the difference between a watchman and a spy, someone who was an observer of life, but were they doing it in a, in a, a watchful way or were they doing it in a way that they were trying to catch someone? You've also got um, uh, intimations of red, yellow, and blue, both in the kind of very muted palette around the, down the right-hand side, but also you've got the, in the, on the other side, the left-hand side, you've got the R of red, the yellow, and then the B of blue. And then there's a shelf at the bottom, again, like the chairs, playing with the dimensions of the painting. It's making it sculptural in form, but the device has swept the, through the paint, creating this wonderful patterning and the stick or device leans up against a ball sitting on the shelf. He made this when he was in Japan. He loved Japan. He went there first when he was, um, when he was in the army. And um, he, he visited again in the 1960s and, and, and made this work. Um, another one of the bathtub series, we see, we see the, the tap straight on this time this beautiful colored celestial sky behind us and the sky starts to appear again and again in his work. But we've also got this, um, this portrait that's been halved um, and it is, is a, a kind of imagining, a recreation of Picasso's woman in a straw hat. And again, you know, it's his homage to Picasso, but he talks about it looking as if it's melting like a sugar cube into the, um, into the hot water of the bath. And souvenir. So souvenir was made in Japan at the same time. He passed this little shop which, um, where he saw plates that they were making which had the face of, of people on them. So he got his, his, uh, his photograph taken, put on the plate. He's referencing red, yellow, and blue around the outside of the plate even though there's no color. But it's a very deadpan photograph. Beautiful encaustic surface on the work. Again, he's got a shelf. But there's a torch which comes into play again which when it worked used to shine on a little bicycle light which then reflected itself onto the, um, onto the image. But it's the only image he's done of himself. It's the only self-portrait and it's a really kind of singular, extraordinary work. 
And then seasons and cycles. Um, my co-curator, Roberta, who is a professor of history of art, and she studied Jasper John's works for years and years. She's, she's really um, a, a absolute authority on his work, has written the catalogue resume. She did a talk on Saturday about the seasons and how how dense they are in terms of imagery. And I mean, they really are an extraordinary body of work. And when when John's created these in, in 1995, 96, it, it created such a sensation, you know, because they were just so different. And by that stage, he talks about himself as having let down the reserve. He's, he's revealing more about himself. And this really is about time and the life cycle. And, but, you know, not only is it about that, he's referencing so much of his past work and his, you know, artistic um, predecessors as well. So the shadow is um, is an outline of his own shadow, and that's in a different position in each of the um, each of the seasons. You see, the flag has been reprised, you know, the double flag, but you've also got the edge of it on the left-hand side. The Mona Lisa appears again. The hand of periscope heart crane, which also relates to the marking of time. Um, you've got these symbols along the bottom, these kind of geometric symbols, which are to do with the production of art, and you've got the George Orr pottery. But well, you'll also see that there's a branch, there's a starry sky, there's a ladder, there's a rope, and all of these relate to, um, to a picture, a very small picture actually by Picasso from 1936 called Minotaur Moving a House. So you can see the starry sky in this, very similar, just going back to John's, and the ladder is there, the rope is there, the branch is there. Um, there's a horse on the wagon which is actually giving birth, and that's referenced in John's work by this little seahorse. So great, great similarities there. But also um, in The Shadow, which was from um, Picasso in 1953, um, where, you know, when you think about John's shadow dominating these pictures, this is, this is Picasso's shadow um, when he's, he's revisiting his, the bedroom of his, um, his lover who has left him. And winter is, I'm not showing you all the seasons, but winter, of course, is where it all falls apart. The ladder is broken. The man is is, um, is is much more obscured. The uh, the, the hand on the, the the circle is right down at the bottom, as if time has run out. And opposite these seasons, we've got five postcards, which were done 20 years later, and really address the same idea about life and death, the passing of time, the boy, the man, how things fall apart. And you 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 start off with this kind of very crisp, bright image. And then it kind of gets darker and darker <coughs> until the figure of the man is replaced in the last painting, which you see kind of on this side with a black, a black dot. But these two, these two bodies of works have never been shown before together. So it really is, you know, it's one of the many exciting moments within the exhibition to see jo how John's kind of looks at these universal themes. And memory tracing, um, you know, memory and, and um, the kind of inner life are things that are very important to him right from the start. I talked about the flag being the, uh, you know, came to him in a dream. And memory is something that he, he looks at again and again. And he does actually say that so much of his work relates to his childhood. And he had a, a, a happy enough childhood, but it, you know, he was, he, his parents got divorced when he was very young. So he ended up living with his paternal grandfather and step-grandmother. So he never really felt as if he was in his own place. And you know, once his grandfather died, he moved around amongst various relatives for a time, his mother and her new family. So he never really felt he belonged. 
And this is a very, very large canvas, M92 to 94, which um, comes to us from the Broad from LA, who are our partners in this exhibition. So once the exhibition closes here in December, it will go to the Broad in, in Los Angeles in, and open in February. And on the, um, on the left-hand side of the canvas, a kind of trompe l'oeil piece of paper, blue paper, taped on to the canvas, um, recreates in white the plan of his grandfather's house. So this idea about, you know, the childhood memory of the space he occupied as a boy. Um, but on top of that, superimposed onto that, is, um, is uh, an, uh, the soldier from the Isenheim altarpiece. Again, a reference to another artist, to, to Grunewald. There's loads of, on the other side of the canvas, loads of references to the seasons. But just, just to show you an image of his grandfather's house, they were well-to-do. He was a farmer, businessman um, in South Carolina. We were in the, the Deep South. And this is the Isenheim altar piece, which he saw in Colomar in 1972. And it's the, the soldier on this side, which is lying down, that is the one that he's recreated that outline of it and on several, uh, across several works. And this relates to childhood as well. So Montez singing. Montez was his step-grandmother. And he remembers her singing a, a, an American, a, I don't know, it's an American song, it's not, not one I've heard of, called Red Sails in the Sunset. And there's a, a the little um, piece of material that's hanging up, kind of trompe l'oeil um, nails driven into the canvas. There's a little yacht with, with red sails. So he remember, he's, he's evoking that childhood memory. But he was also fascinated by Bruno Bettelheim, the child um, psychiatrist who published a series of reports on treating schizophrenic children. And there was one report of a drawing that a schizophrenic girl did depicting the human face. And Bettelheim described it as all of the, the, um, the, the various uh, facial features were, um, were, were pulled in different directions to the margins of the paper. And this is what Johns is examining here. Another one of the catenary series. This is called Mane Dega, and it's a pencil drawing, and absolutely exquisite. It's, it's, you've, you've got your trompe l'oeil string going from one side to the other, but you can see it's made up of a variety of squares, and it's referencing Manet's, um, the, the execution of Maximilian, which was, um, was cut up into pieces, sustained some damage, cut up into pieces, and was distributed to various different places. And when he died, Dega, um, brought these pieces together, and um, they were all mounted, eventually mounted onto canvas in the positions that they would have been on, on the original large canvas. And of course, we have it here at the, the National Gallery. And Johns is, is recreating all of those patchwork elements of the execution of Maximilian, but also paying homage to, um, to both Manet and Degas. And the, the string that kind of runs across it is kind of, you know, again, it's, it's as, it, as it linked two worlds in I Call to the Grave, it's linking Manet to Degas to Johns as well. So he's looking back at his own artistic heritage. Tracings became a really important thing for him, where he was kind of tracing the outline of something and using it within the, um, within the construction of a painting. This is called Green Angel. And there's this unidentified form. No one knows where this tracing has come from, and Johns isn't telling us. And this white form that sits in the middle of it. And then there's the regret series. So this is a photograph of Lucian Freud sitting on a bed. He was posed by Francis Bacon. So Francis Bacon wanted Lucian Freud to pose for him to make a picture. And John Deacon took the photograph. 
Those, it's very battered, you can see it's very kind of twisted and torn, as flat as a paint, um, and then those black areas are, are where Bacon has torn the original photograph and folded it back. And John saw this a few years ago in an auction catalogue where the, the Bacon painting of the, of the subject was being sold and was very, very taken with it. And it like the, the pattern that he saw that described the um, cross-hatching pattern he saw it on a car, it, it's, it, it found its way into his head and eventually came out in this series called Regrets, where he did prints, watercolors, drawings, um, and, and paintings, all in the same subject called Regrets. And of course, Regrets really have that, has that sense of looking back. Um, but it's also, there's a humorous element to it. Um, Jasper's got a huge big stamp which says, regrets Jasper Johns, and when he gets these letters from, from everyone saying, can you donate a picture to this, can you turn up to this opening, he stamps, regrets Jasper Johns, and sends it back. Um, but, but, you know, this, is, you know this, this work, by recreating this work, um, it, it, it sort of, again, it links his artistic heritage to both Bacon and Freud. And you can see what he's done here. So when you think about the, the dark bits, they're the negative spaces in John's work, but he's mirrored it. So he's kind of doubled that on the other side. And the colored element is, um, is Lucian Freud with this classic pose of despair, you know, that head in hands. And this is the most extraordinary painting. He's also done a series of prints, which we have in its entirety here at the Academy, the States, where he alters them as he goes along. And a similar, a similar thing has occurred with this painting by the uh, war photographer Larry Burroughs, who took this painted um, photograph in Vietnam. And he was, he was following um, this, this captain called Captain Farley. And this was on the cover of Life magazine with the, with the, the title, Captain Farley Breaks Down. And um, he'd been on a, a mission. He'd seen some of his, um, his colleagues killed. He came back to the mess room and just sat down and wept. And like Lucian Freud, is this classic pose of despair. And Jasper's known this image for a long time, and it's recently he's developed it into a body of work called Farley Breaks Down, um, which is very, you know, it's extraordinary and it's moving. And this is it. Um, again, he's using ink on, on, on um, and, and water-soluble and caustic on plastic, very difficult to work with, but it's the most extraordinary work which is so abstracted in so many ways until you start discovering things in it. And that's, you know, Jasper's always inviting us to look more. You know, what is it? You know, do, do, how, do we really understand what it is? And then it starts to reveal itself to you. So you can spot the windows at the top. And then it's this kind of, you know, the, the figure in fatigues is, is just lower down. I've shown you the photographs. So you can almost kind of make out the shape of the figure. And included in the exhibition is his latest work. Um, Roberta and I saw it in his studio when it was almost finished and, and, um, and said to him we'd love to have it in the exhibition. So he finished it for us just before Christmas. And, you know, there's lots of things being, you know, concerns that he's, he's approached earlier that he's, he's um, included here. The ruler is present. The, um, the, the elements of the face from Montez singing. But see how here the eyeballs have been replaced by noughts. So he's looking back at the numbers, which he first started in the 1950s. The celestial sky that appeared first in the 1980s is here, as is the Big Dipper on the other side. And it's a, you know, it's a really beautiful, intriguing work with a wonderful surface. So I realize that I've, I've talked for quite some time. So I've, I've done about 
55 minutes, and I'm supposed to leave a little bit of time for questions. This is a, a very recent portrait of Jasper Johns in the studio, and he does literally work every day. He doesn't really want to do anything else apart from his work, and he's still producing extraordinary pieces. And, you know, I think this exhibition really is a fantastic opportunity for all of us to get to know his, his incredible um, achievement um, better. So if there's any questions that anyone has, I'm very happy to attempt to answer. With the pieces with the newspapers, were the papers themselves significant or not? I don't think they were. I mean, it's a really interesting question. I don't think they were, but of course, they are to us now. You know, because it, it, it's, you know, it, it was a period of great change in America, and of course, it's fascinating for us to kind of see those, those elements, but I, I, I don't think so. If he made you lunch. Oh, yeah, yes. And not only does he, um, I mean, he has help now, of course, but not only that, but he, he, he's very interested in growing vegetables, so you, you'll always get um, some delicious vegetable that's just been picked from his plot. So, yeah. Great. If everyone can just join me in thanking Edith for this wonderful talk. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.